When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah, I have to say that uh, this is our period piece episode of the show, and Mm -hmm. I appreciate that for the occasion, you did such a great job at setting the tone by recreating a pitch-perfect representation of 2022 podcasting culture in the studio. I mean, the best way to have a really good dialogue about really good movies is to just have the most top-notch microphones and, I don't know, a prime card table. I, I, I simply could not talk about history if I were not immersed in the historical period <laughs> of the early 2020s. <laughs> well, listeners, hopefully uh, you will find our conversation about Don't Worry, Darling immersive as well. We're also going to be celebrating another period piece in our watchlist segment. Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans is having its 30th birthday, and we're going to be celebrate by talking about it this week. The Last of the Mohicans, 1950s Housewives, and hopefully immersive conversation coming up on episode 350 of Seeing and Believing. I'm so sorry I forgot to tell you, but you're not feeling very well. And the only way to cure it is if we stay home all day and I tend to you and kiss you and cook for... Bye. Bang, bang! Security level, yellow. All residents safe and accounted for. Victory is safe and secure. Here you can live the life you deserve. We can all live the life... Yes, we're here on episode 350 of Seeing and Believing, the big 350. It seems like kind of a auspicious, dare I say, historic uh, episode. It has come but once, it will never come again. Uh, that's true of all of our episodes, but a nice round number like 350 kind of gets me in that mindset. Yeah, the uh, podcast feels like, you know, it's it's coming into its, its grandeur and its splendor, perhaps. Um, I don't feel like I can take any uh, credit for any of that, though. I, I mean... You can take the credit if you want. We'll, we'll see how this episode goes, and then we'll make a determination. This is going to be a historical episode just in general. We've got two movies that are period pieces we're going to be talking about today. In the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about The Last of the Mohicans, which is having its own uh, milestone this year. It's its 30th anniversary, mm-hmm. so we're going to be revisiting that. I'm really excited to talk about that film, as I am with most Michael Mann pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, we are going to turn our attention to another period piece, Don't Worry Darling, set in the 1950s, question mark? Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's the film's official synopsis. Alice, played by Florence Pugh, and Jack 
played by Harry Styles, feel lucky to be living in the idealized community of Victory, the experimental company town housing the men who work for the top-secret Victory Project and their families. The 1950s societal optimism espoused by their CEO, played here by a devious Chris Pine, anchors every aspect of daily life in the tight-knit desert utopia. While the husbands spend every day inside the Victory Project headquarters working on the development of progressive materials, as they put it, their wives get to spend their time enjoying the beauty and luxury of their community. Life is perfect with every resident's needs met by the company. All they ask in return is discretion and unquestioning commitment to the victory cause. But when cracks in their idyllic life begin to appear, exposing flashes of something much more sinister lurking beneath the attractive facade, Alice can't help questioning exactly what they're doing in victory and why. So, Sarah, this is one of those twisty high concept thrillers revolving around gender politics that i feel like we've been seeing a lot of lately Mm -hmm. maybe it's just me but it does seem like there's a bit of a trend going on so my question for you to get us started is how well do you think don't worry darlin works on the thriller side of things how well does it work on the gender politics side of things and how well does it integrate those two things i mean great question and i'm of multiple minds about this so i feel like don't Worry Darling is a string of pretty interesting vignettes that are have a flavor of thriller to them that are kind of strung together by that gender politics thread. And I, I genuinely don't think that that really works all that well. I feel like you have to pick one or the other and do either of those particularly well. And maybe if you do the thriller side well, then the gender politics will come through. Or maybe if you do the gender politics side, the thriller pieces would shine through a little bit better. I'm not entirely sure what happened here, but I don't really feel like I felt thrilled by this movie while I was watching it. Bemused, definitely. (laughs) Mystified, absolutely. Um, And then once I was able to figure out what was going on, I feel like a lot of those pieces started to sort of fall into place. And I kind of wish that I'd been left with a little bit more of a sense of mystery. But once that... I don't know, once the final piece or once the missing puzzle piece from the center of this movie starts to fall into place, everything else sort of snaps in around it and not in a, oh, that's a neat storytelling trick kind of way, more in a, oh, this one thing explains away the entire mystery of the movie in a way that I didn't really necessarily feel was was satisfying. So did, did the mystery or the thriller or or the gender stuff work for you at all? I, I mean, we should say at the outset that there is a, a twist in this movie uh, towards the end. We're not going to give it away, but mm-hmm. the twist, I, I know what you're talking about uh, when you talk about how it kind of it's a, a lot of puzzle pieces sort of snap together in the final act and um and I think that's also, I also agree that that's kind of to the movie's detriment. It reminds me a lot of a, one, some of M. Night Shyamalan's uh, worst movies mm. where there is a big twist. And yeah, it's surprising, but it doesn't actually make the movie more interesting once you, you realize the big twist. It, it, it explains a whole lot of stuff. But in explaining it, it kind of drains the movie of anything that was intriguing about it up to that point. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way I felt about this film. I spent a lot of the film not really – I I don't think it's a particularly strong 
film before that big twist comes along, but I was still kind of intrigued by the mystery of what the Victory Project was and kind of what what's going on in this small town. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to see where it was all going to go. And so when the, the big reveal happens and we see that, I felt like, oh, okay, I, I know where it's going. And that kind of, oh, okay, reaction was really all I got out of it, which was disappointing in the end. It's kind of a shame because the setup really is quite good. I liked being able to see bits and pieces of this world as um, Alice and Jack start to go about their day right at the very beginning. You get a little bit of a sense of who they are as a couple and what their life is like. And everything feels idyllic with just a hint of sinister, like right around the edges. Um, And that tone, as, as the sinisterness ramps up, I think the individual encounters of the uncanny, shall we say, that Alice has as she's tending house and talking with her friends in victory, um... Those pieces that are, I think are intended to deepen the mystery really just serve to add a little bit too much flavor without actually doing anything to enrich the story going forward. So so are you talking about kind of the impressionistic flashes we get? Uh, like Alice, as she kind of realizes that something's going on under the surface, is kind of played by, by visions or hallucinations. It's not necessarily clear exactly what they are, but they are sort of, they're foreboding Without really being like watching them, you're not sure exactly what you're seeing. You just know that they're foreboding and they suggest something. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you mentioning? Not the flashes, but there are other pieces where you're not entirely sure if this is all happening in Alice's head, but these do happen in the trailer. She cracks an egg and there's nothing in there. There's a glass window pane that just sort of closes in on her and kind of gives you this claustrophobic feeling. And as individual pieces of, I don't know, tone coloring for the movie i do think that they they work individually but taken as a whole they don't really do much to deepen what's going on it's just oh that's a weird thing that just happened i'm not really sure why or how it connects to the rest of the movie yeah and it's i i and i i agree with your take there and i think it's it's hard to put your finger on exactly why it doesn't work as sort of this impressionistic uh, atmosphere building touch because mm-hmm. you think about something like Mulholland Drive, which is also very invested in kind of building this sunny exterior and then re- you know revealing the the rot underneath or, or and the dysfunction underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the for the the Winkies Diner scene is not really tied to anything else explicitly in the movie. There's no plot connection. It doesn't really explain itself. It's sort of we we see it and then. We move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something about the Winkies diner scene that just feels very much of a piece with of the kind of mood that Lynch is building with Mm -hmm. that film. And with this one, it it, the Olivia Wilde's technical skill, I think, is on display. I think she's a good director. Mm -hmm. The the flashes that we get, the little vignettes of. Uh, Florence Pugh sort of being crushed against a wall, like almost like a, I don't know, like a a butter or an insect in an exhibit or Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. feels like that's that is claustrophobic and it works very effectively. But there's something about it uh, and the other vignettes like it taken the context of the whole film that feel like it's just not building the atmosphere that it needs to 
in order to justify their inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if that might just be because in the end, this is kind of a very plot forward movie. There's a lot of plot mm -hmm. and maybe that detracts away from the impressionism. I'm not sure though. Yeah. I, I will say, I do think Olivia Wilde is innocent here <laughs> um, in terms of the way that the story is told. I do think that her direction is solid. I think the movie also looks pretty great. I really did like a lot of the production design and the costuming in particular, like lots of great dresses in this movie that don't really distract away from the story that's happening. Um, they, they do serve to inform the character, but I do wish that the movie had been willing to spend a little bit more time, maybe not even on Alice and Jack, because these two characters do get quite a lot of screen time, and I think we can talk about the actors' performances, but I do wish that the movie had been willing to spread out a little bit and focus a little bit more on some of the surrounding characters, too. I don't really know what any of these people deals are and i kind of wish that i understood why everybody else was in victory jack and alice like it seems to make sense for these two characters but for everybody else they're just sort of facades of characters almost like they're they're non-characters they're non-people i mean there there is an interesting moment early on in the film uh where uh you know all the characters uh are kind of at this this big party at the um at the the home of Chris Pine's kind of shadowy CEO. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a new couple who just moved into the neighborhood. And the the male half of the couple is having a conversation with the, the other men, uh, one of whom is played by Nick Kroll. Mm -hmm. And at some point during the conversation, the new arrival asks uh, asks a seemingly innocent question about the CEO, sort of like what his deal is. And uh, Nick Kroll's character very emphatically tells him, he's, you know, you don't need to know that. You just need to, you know, obey or you you just need to do your place. And the way that Kroll delivers that line, there's just, it's just a touch too vehement. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an edge to it that you wouldn't expect, even in a normal community like this, uh, you wouldn't expect that strong of a reaction from it. And that's a very nice example of how some of the performances I think are calibrated really well to build that unease. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, that wild really sustains that kind of unease throughout e evenly throughout the rest of the picture. It's kind of not distributed evenly so that when the, the machinery of the plot kicks in, you're kind of wondering, okay, but I don't, I don't understand <laughs> how much uh, I'm supposed to be focusing on the plot and how much I'm supposed to be focusing on where these characters fit into it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a wild problem or do you think that's a script problem though? Because I, for I, me, I think it's the script. I think it's, I think it's largely a script problem. I think the problem is the script is just trying really hard to be kind of the surprising sci-fi inflected uh, story about, the 1950s social mores and it's also trying to really be suspenseful and and it, it's trying to work both as a genre piece and also as a piece of social commentary mm -hmm. and it's, it's popping a huge sweat trying to <laughs> trying yeah. to do both of those things mm -hmm. and it's just in in the end I, it just doesn't really cohere mm -hmm. i do think that if if wild had found there there's probably a way that wild could have found a way to sort of inject notes of unease like that nick kroll line i mentioned earlier where mm -hmm. you know the, the lines in the script but the 
unease that it generates is all in the performance and in the way that Wild is shooting that scene. Mm-hmm. So I think that there might have been something she could have done to save it. I don't know what that would be, though. Mm-hmm. And it, in any case, would be a really tough nut for her to crack with this with this screenplay. Yeah, it's tough. This movie really feels like it's symptomatic of a, a thing that I've been noticing, especially with a lot of sci-fi and horror in the last, I don't know, handful of years or so, which is that the point of the movie is the central metaphor on which the plot turns. Like, usually there is some sort of a central metaphor that's going on. And in this case, it feels like it's a commentary both on the social mores of the 1950s and then also a commentary on the social mores of today, just sort of by extension. And I think that if the movie had been so much less focused on trying to make that metaphor very overt and explicit and had been willing to branch out and just tell a story that happens to be thrilling that maybe has some resonance with that idea, maybe it would have worked a little bit better. But I just think that that central metaphor is too strong, so much so that it kind of consumes everything else that's going on. I mean, this is sort of... We, we live in a post-Mad Men age, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, we've we've all seen pointed social critiques of the 1950s and, and 1960s America mm-hmm. uh, in, in just in the, the way that a, a rigid sort of code of uh, behavior was enforced for a certain subset of, of the population mm-hmm. and the ways specifically in which uh, women chafed under under those, those norms. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... So there's already kind of a lot of shorthand that this film is is employing. Like you, you see the the wife cooking dinner for the dutiful dress wearing wife, you know, wearing makeup, mm-hmm. cooking a, a delicious roast for her husband, and he walks through the door and says, "Honey, I'm home." Like it's sort of a leave it to Beaver kind of scenario. So you already kind of know the implicit critique before it even makes one. Mm-hmm. So for for it to still kind of justify itself, it kind of has to either find a new spin to make on it, or it just needs to not be so on the nose because otherwise you're kind of like left in the position of saying, I, I mean, I've, I've kind of seen this before. Mm-hmm. I need something more than just that, which to be fair, I think the movie is maybe trying to paper over with the sci-fi inflected bits, mm-hmm. but the sci-fi inflected bits are, are also kind of cribbing from uh, other <laughs> Other movies in that vein, uh, which I'm not going to specifically name because I don't want to give anything away. But Mm -hmm. needless to say that it feels like the script is is cribbing from all over the place and never really finds its own interesting angle on it to make you feel like you're it's saying anything new i mean there's a couple of sex scenes in this movie that definitely felt like they were trying to be a little bit more i don't know and maybe it gets back to the explicitness of the metaphor is that the movie itself is kind of explicit about those scenes as well but i also couldn't quite figure out the point of including those in there either other than just to say like we made a movie with some very explicit (laughs) sex scenes well I mean, yeah. And again, though, that's kind of like a, a, a window dressing issue. Like it, it mm. is sort of uh, it's superficially new. I mean, we've not necessarily seen something doing specifically these things all in the same movie, but it, it kind of arrives at the at the at the same destination mm-hmm. and the places where it does try to genuinely surprise you. I felt and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this with the, you know, the twists and turns that the plot takes. I felt like 
while it explained some aspects of what was going on, it just raised further questions about other aspects of the setting that I don't feel like were intended. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I think my problem with the plot was that it kind of felt a little bit shapeless, at least at first. So there were things that I was expecting to happen a little bit later on down the line that just happened right away. And then you're kind of stuck in this sort of tension is not the right word for it, because this isn't it's not the same tension that you get from a thriller movie that um, is willing to put you through the ringer. It's more of a tension of I'm not entirely sure where this is going and I can't quite put my finger on why. And it's not because of the movie ramping up that tension intentionally with the way that the frame is framed or the way that the dialogue is, is working um, with the, mm, sorry. Um, it's not really ramping up that tension with the cinematography or with the way that the actors are delivering their lines or anything. It's more of, huh, something unexpected just happened. And I don't understand why one of these characters makes a choice that they do very, very quickly. Like these characters are told not to leave victory explicitly. And then a character does almost immediately. And I couldn't really quite put my finger on why that decision was made or how this character gets to where they go so early on in the movie in that particular situation. And I think from there, a lot of the mystery and the tension were kind of popped for me because I felt like that scene and that leaving was something that probably should have happened a little bit later on in the movie, like a little bit less of, oh, there's something wrong here because I've been outside of this and I understand what's going on now. And a little bit more of, oh, there's something wrong here. Let me poke at the edges of this society that we're living in. Yeah. So Alice does kind of come to the realization that something weird is going on mm -hmm. by the end of the first act. Mm -hmm. Like that the, the first act is sort of establishing the setting, kind of uh, establishing that, you know, to the audience, like we immediately kind of caught into the fact like something weird is happening here. Like she, uh, Alice is vacuuming the, uh, the floor, uh, and on the TV is this, uh, you know, old cartoon with skeletons dancing around. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, so it's obvious to us from, from moment one, that something weird is going on. Alice figures out something weird is going on by the end of the first act. And then it feels like the film doesn't really have anywhere to go from there. Like something mm -hmm. weird is going on, but we still have, you know, like 90 minutes of movie left to go. So we mm. need to keep things going. And it doesn't, it doesn't develop that tension in a way that feels particularly interesting. It, and again, it's not so much that it's not tense, like individual sequences and scenes are interesting, are, are directed well, are, are for the most part acted pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, but in the context of the whole film, you're kind of, waiting to get to the fireworks factory where <laughs> at, at either where the momentum begins to build or things are explained in a way that recontextualizes the stuff that we've already sat through. And the, by the time that actually does happen, it just, it feels disappointing and deflating. It feels like a plot structure thing because a lot of those individual scenes that you're talking about where there's something weird going on and then there's something else weird going on in another scene at another time. So much of that is just Florence Pugh acting against herself or just like acting alone in the living room of her house, cracking an egg that again, doesn't have a yolk in it, things like that. There's not much room for her character to bounce off other characters except for the scenes where she's set up against 
Harry Styles as Jack, or in a couple of scenes where she is set up explicitly against Chris Pine, and the two characters have to start trying to feel each other out. So this kind of gets at like my fundamental problem with the movie, I think, more so than the plot or the lack of tension is just, it feels like Florence Pugh is outclassing almost everybody else in the movie here. <laughs> I feel really, really bad for Harry Styles because hes he, it feels like he's out of his depth. I, I mean, it. I, I'll, I'll say this for him, the the things that I had heard about this film going into it led me to expect kind of a disastrous performance, disastrously amateurish or going for for beats that the actor can't really reach. And I don't think it's a disastrous performance. I think it's kind of a mediocre performance. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not great. I think the strongest impression it left me with was just um, tentative. Like Jack, the way Styles. Uh, the, the kind of performance he gives, it just feels like he's not fully confident in the choices that he's making. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen an actor not know how to kiss as spectacularly <laughs> as Harry Styles does here. Like it, it, it feels it feels like he's a little bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. with some of the things that the script is asking him to do. Hmm. Um, I don't know necessarily why why that is. It, it, He's maybe it's just a lack of experience, but it does mean that in the scenes where Florence Pugh is really, you know, going big and needs something to push against, mm-hmm. uh, she's not really meeting an, an equivalent amount of force back on on the, the pushing that she's doing. Maybe that's also part of the film's commentary on gender politics, though, because she is a very strong female character and not in the way of like. I kick things and I'm an action star. Um, And he feels deeply ineffectual and dissatisfying, I think, in a way that the movie feels like it might be commenting on. I don't know that Harry Styles' performance is in an unintentional piece of that puzzle necessarily, but I could see that working maybe with another actor who's a little bit more assured in what he's doing. The if the performance were complexified a, a little bit more where yes, he might be a little bit ineffectual or milk toast in comparison to Alice. I could see that. I think the problem is he's only kind of milk toast mm-hmm. and I, the film needs something more from that because at, at the end of the day, the central conflict is between Alice and Jack, mm-hmm. the exact nature of that conflict doesn't become fully clear until the close to the end, but it's there, there's some sort of conflict going on there. And to simply have somebody who's a dynamo of energy and, and uh, claustrophobia and, and worry kind of up against somebody who's just, he is just sort of, it's not clear (laughs) what is going, what, what he's, what the dominant characteristic of Jack is. It's, Mm. It's a problem. And I think, I mean, if we can turn to something that I think really does work, I think Chris Pine gives a really interesting performance mm-hmm. because he's he's threatening, but he's not sort of, I don't know. I think he's, I, I think Chris Pine is an excellent actor. I love watching him in villainous roles specifically. There's a, a little movie he was in a, a while back called Z for Zachariah. It's post-apocalyptic story. Uh, uh, opposite Margot Robbie and Chiwetel Ejiofor, mm-hmm. and in that one again, he's kind of playing this guy who's he's you know he's very handsome, he's he's very um, suave. He's there, there's nothing outwardly disturbing about him, 
And that paradoxically loops back around and becomes threatening because you don't know what his game is, mm. but you know he's up to some sort of game, but he's not giving you any sort of... It, it plays games with the audience and the characters' heads. Like, what's what's this guy up to? He's up to something, but I can't put my finger on what. Pine does great at that. And I think that's an example of maybe what I'm missing from Harry Styles' performance, which is the sense that there's something going on underneath the surface, even if it's not meant to be apparent to us like mm-hmm. that sense that there's something going on and i think styles just isn't a layered enough actor to give us the same sort of notes that chris pine is playing i do think you get a little bit of that fireworks and that friction when florence Pugh and chris pine meet up with each other on the screen it doesn't happen often enough for me honestly and i, I do wonder the age gap is too big, but it would be a pretty fascinating movie if Chris Pine had been in the Harry Styles role, perhaps. I mean, I'd be interested in that. I, I think you might be right that the the age gap would be a little bit tough to, to swallow. But mm-hmm. again, Pine, it, it's an example of just a really talented actor can just have a certain magnetic you you just want to watch them do more things regardless of what those things are Mm -hmm. and i think chris pine uh shows is an exemplar of that in this film there's a couple of lines that he says that i think if anybody else had said them i wouldn't have bought it but the way that he delivers those lines like you said there's he looks innocuous and then the way that he delivers the way that he holds himself like the way that he says those words in that order feels deeply sinister and then from that moment on you know this is a guy who can't be trusted Florence Pugh's character Alice obviously understands that as well but she also can't put her finger on it so there is I don't know there's a little bit of that tension and I kind of wish that there had been more of it between those two actors. I I think that quality of not being able to put your finger on it is something that I would have liked to see the whole film lean into Hmm. rather than spending so much energy in the end on kind of explaining okay well this is exactly what's going on Mm -hmm. letting um, us in the audience sort of notice odd notes that maybe Alice doesn't notice right away, but that we see, and then watching her slowly become aware of those things, that I mean, I guess that's kind of what I would have liked to have seen of it. And I'm, again, I don't like to criticize a film for what I want it to be rather than what it is. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that would have been a productive sort of approach rather than sort of just kind of laying all of its cards on the table right from the start. I I guess it maybe comes down to the structure again. I just, I needed some more uncertainty about what exactly was going on rather than that. Well, the, all the men are kind of up to something and they're bad. (laughs) I mean, that's sort of, it's the most obvious way, obvious direction to take a story like this. Mm -hmm. And when it is revealed that yes, indeed, the the men are kind of bad and they're up to something. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels like, well, I, I knew that from the very beginning. So it, it, it does, again, it feels a little deflating. I think that the movie would have paradoxically been a little bit more sure-footed if it hadn't tried to lean so hard and grasp so hard at that central metaphor that the entire movie revolves around. I think if it had been willing to kind of live in a sense of mystery and in a sense of friction and tension, it would have been a stronger one for it. 
Yeah. Well, uh, listeners, we'd be interested if you've seen this film to get your thoughts on that central question. Uh, Don't Worry Darling is currently playing this weekend in, in all theaters around the country. So if you get a chance to check it out, definitely let us know your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about The Last of the Mohicans here in a bit. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. I do feel like, unfortunately, with Don't Worry Darling, there's already been so much conversation swirling around this movie that a lot of people might have already been conversationed out by the time they actually get to see the thing. I mean, the title's telling them not to worry, so I'm, I mean... Maybe there will be more conversation for them to have afterwards because it's it's antithetical to, to the conversation that's happening around it. I don't even know. Who, who even knows? I am interested to check out our, our virtual mailbag when people do get a chance to see it a little bit more. See if there, you know, there's uh, any stuff in there about that film. Uh, before we get to this week's mailbag, though, I just wanted to throw in a quick plug for our Patreon. Uh, we are going to be coming up on the beginning of October here in a bit, which means that we're going to have another bonus episode for all you listeners. Mm-hmm. And again, the reason that we start doing these bonus episodes is we just want to make sure that we're kind of like giving you a, a lot of bang for your virtual buck. For those of you who have subscribed to our Patreon campaign. We want to give you a little bit more bang for your actual book. <laughs> so if you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, you can check out some of the uh, reward tiers. You can pay, pledge at various levels from $3 a month all the way up to $25 a month. Uh, there's a few perks at each tier. One of the most popular ones is the $10 a month level where you get a personalized Netflix recommendation list. Uh, I guess I can't say Netflix recommendation list. It's more of like an all everything. We are, we are streaming service agnostic here at seeing and believing. Exactly. Uh, and uh, the $10 a month level also lets you pick one film for us to review a, a year and we have to review it no matter what it is, mm-hmm. which might be also a good use of the of those bonus episodes, you know, just to make sure that every Patreon subscriber who has a pick that they desperately want to hear us talk about, you get your time in the sun. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely looking forward to hearing what our patrons pick for us for the rest of the year. Earlier this year, of course, we... We talked about Rear Window and we talked about Parallel Mothers, a lot of very different and disparate movies out there. You can make us talk about whatever movie you want us to talk about, which feels like a lot of power to me. (laughs) I'm excited slash apprehensive about the picks that are waiting in the wings for us. Let's just say that. (laughs) And in the meantime, um, we can talk about some picks that we were talking about over on Twitter. So every Sunday... I like to ask a question over on the Seeing and Believing Twitter feed about a movie that you're thinking about. Usually there's some sort of a tie into what we're going to be talking about in the previous week or in the upcoming week. So this week, I wanted to know what's your favorite historical drama. We're talking about Don't Worry, Darling. You've got your 1950s in there. We're also going to be talking about Last of the Mohicans in a few minutes here. And uh, that's a little bit earlier, mid-1700s. So we did hear from Ron Sturry, who had a lot of questions about what kind of historical drama um, we were thinking of. And I really like to keep these questions open-ended. So it can really be just about anything. And in response, he gave us a whole list of a lot of really good movies. Young Mr. Lincoln, Ben-Hur, To Kill a Mockingbird, Gandhi, Titanic, Hotel Rwanda, 
Lincoln, so two Abraham Lincoln movies in here, Dunkirk, 1917, The Revenant, and The Lives of Others. That's That feels like a good recommendation list, honestly. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I'm a little bit, I don't know if I like The Revenant as much as Ron does, <laughs> but uh, he, he did seem to uh, end up with uh, the lives of others as kind of being his top pick, top of the heap for him. Mm-hmm. And I can recommend that one for sure. That's And it's also um, a look at a, I feel like a setting and a time that are, we don't see a whole lot of in the movies. Specifically, it's set in East Germany during uh, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I found it to be really compelling, both just on a story level and just on the setting level. It was really interesting to see that on screen. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating setting. And it's funny because the movie that I was thinking of when I posed this question was actually Cold War, which is set behind the Iron Curtain. Oh. Also in roughly the same time period, I think, but mm-hmm. a very different tone. Very different tone. Excellent movie. I loved Cold War. It's a great one. So would your pick also be The Lives of Others or would it be something else? Oh, man. Uh, I there, there are so many that I could pick. I, I might go the Ron Sturry route and just like throw out a whole bunch. I really like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. Um, I, I mean, there's a whole slew of World War II films that, that I could uh, mention. I, I am a big fan of The Witch. I think the, I mean, it's not technically a drama. It's a horror film, but mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked before about how I just think Robert Eggers is excellent at building a setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just as easily say The Lighthouse. Uh, if you tend more towards the wiki persuasion, then, you know, you can enjoy <laughs> the lighthouse keepers of that film's period setting as well. But there's a lot to pick for sure. Especially if you're fond of lobster. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go on and turn our gaze over towards another historical drama. That's going to be Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans. So don't go away. And now we arrive at last at the watch list segment. This is typically the segment where one host picks a film that they like that the other host has not seen. We watch it together. We discuss it together and uh, have a great time with that. However, we bent the rules a little bit this time mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of good reasons. This is a film that Sarah picked, but neither of us have seen. So this is brand new for both of us. Mm-hmm. It is, of course, Michael Mann's 1992, The Last of the Mohicans. Mm-hmm. This is the second time I've done this, by the way. And it mm-hmm. worked out really well with Buck and the Preacher. So it if it works out really well this time around, I feel like I'm on a hot streak. And I don't know if that's a good thing for my ego necessarily, but I'm having a good time don't, with it. Don't let it go to your head, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is Michael Mann's adaptation of the James Fenimore Cooper novel of the same title, and it follows Nathaniel Hawkeye Poe, here played by the great Daniel Day-Lewis, mm-hmm. as he navigates the war-torn American colonies during the French and Indian Wars of the mid-1700s with his adopted Mohican family. He gets caught up in the conflict between the British and the French, along with the general's daughter, played by Madeline Stowe, and a grim-faced Huron warrior named Magua, played by the also great West Studi. So, Sarah, this is, you know, we haven't, we both haven't seen this film until uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was new to you as well. So, what is the tie-in for this episode, if there was one, and are you happy with your choice? So... <laughs> No tie-in. Um, it just happens to be the 30th anniversary of Last of the Mohicans this week. Like, it came out 30 years ago this week. Um, 
I've never met a Michael Mann movie I didn't like. And the streak remains unbroken at this point as well. I really enjoyed this movie quite a lot. So keeping my fingers crossed, Kevin, what did you think? I liked it quite a bit myself. Yes. I, I don't, I, so I feel like this in some ways is a really quintessentially American movie in the same way that we think of Westerns being quintessentially American. Mm -hmm. I just think about the, the great score in this film, the, I don't know. I, I, the way I put it to you in, in our Slack conversation was this movie is so gorgeous. It makes me angry. (laughs) Uh, Dante Spinati did the uh, cinematography work alongside man's direction. And man, this is just a jaw droppingly good looking movie. And Mm -hmm. I, it made me the reason it makes me angry is that it makes me want every other movie to look this good mm-hmm. and i'm upset that this side of heaven not every movie will not <laughs> will look this good so uh i i liked it quite a bit myself what worked for you about the beauty of those frames was it the natural setting was it the lighting like what's what's a shot that you really liked oh man so there's so many shots to choose from I, I think overall what I appreciated about the aesthetic was there's this there's this misty, foggy kind of look to the lighting. The, mm-hmm. way, the way the lighting is done, I don't know how they pulled it off because it's just so – it's so uniform mm-hmm. and it doesn't look fake. Like it doesn't look like somebody got some dry ice and they sort of like pumped it in front of the camera and kind of got the diffuse lighting that way. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know. Did they just shoot in a place that was just naturally misty in this way? I don't quite know how it was achieved. It reminded me a little bit of the great cinematography uh, by Andrew Lesney in The Fellowship of the Ring, specifically. How there's kind of this patina of mistiness to everything that gives it all kind of this. It, it enhances the period feel of it and just makes it feel enchanting in mm. a way that. I have difficulty articulating, but just that, you know, that early sequence where we see Daniel Day Lewis sprinting through a forest in, you know, in pursuit of his quarry Mm -hmm. is just the, the beams of light shining through the treetops with fog diffusing it. Uh, the way that everything seems so lush and green, mm-hmm. it's everything is so vivid. The colors in this film, there's a, a, a scene where um, our heroes are hiding behind a waterfall and they're being pursued by enemy warriors who are carrying torches. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this, this steely gray blue lighting from the waterfall. And then those torches are just the most vivid orange mm-hmm. I've think i've ever seen from a flame in a film Mm -hmm. it's incredible i love it yeah and none of those contrasts look artificial at all except in the places where they're very much intended to feel like somebody is out of place i'm thinking here of a lot of the meadow scenes where british officers are marching through or, or sitting down in a meadow there's a scene very early on when cora and um one of the officers who's been courting her are sitting down to tea They're the only two people in the shot. They're kind of facing each other in profile right in the middle of the frame. And we're we're seeing them from a good distance. So you can see the table that they're seated at, which is in the middle of this lush green meadow. And against that green, you get the red of the British officer's jacket. And you get the sense that neither of these people are supposed to be here. This is a land that isn't necessarily untouched. Other people live here, and the movie is very cognizant of that. But neither of these people are in a place where 
they're particularly suited, nobody more than the British officers. And then you get that sense again in several of the battle scenes where there are infantrymen walking through meadows that are also this gorgeous lush green. You get that dappled light coming in through the trees on either side and you get the bright red of their coats as they're walking through the forest. And then all of a sudden they get waylaid by Huron warriors and you can tell immediately that these men are completely out of their depth. They don't belong here. They don't know how to fight here. They don't understand how to live here in this particular place. And you get a lot of that just from the contrast of the colors between their jackets and the world around them. I mean, we, we could keep naming shots. I'll name another. There's <laughs> uh, it, It's right after the climax. So, so the climax, which uh, on in my letterbox review, I called kind of one of the great treasures of American cinema, just the, the editing and the, and the score and just the, the momentum of the sequence is just astounding. And, and of course you get those grand, pans across the the misty mountains of you know again this this setting this uh, very american setting mm-hmm. um it's just it's wonderful but at the after the the climax has has occurred we get this shot of of hawkeye and cora together and a lesser director kind of would have kind of placed them more prominently in the frame like you know they're safe they're they're together you know the the denouement can start happening they they can we can start moving towards our happily ever after but man frames them way down in the bottom left corner of the screen Mm -hmm. and the bulk of the screen is taken up by just a cliff face there's nothing particularly striking about the cliff face it's just a sheer uh expanse of rock um but in that shot it, it said it says so much about the fact that these people are caught up in in a world that's in flux it's changing it's so much bigger than them and i think that's something this film does really well is that sense of scale Mm -hmm. um but their their victory (laughs) like it is sort of like a the good guys do win in in a sense at the end of the film like you know the the hero gets the girl so to speak um and yet the the film kind of closes on a note of melancholy that um Chingachuk, the adoptive father of Hawkeye, he's the last of the Mohicans. When he dies, his his entire tribe will will be extinct. Mm-hmm. And it's a melancholy moment. And we think back to that shot of Hawkeye and Korra down in the bottom corner. And since they're all human, they're they're kind of like standing in for all of humanity. Like humanity is a danger, an endangered species almost mm. in this wild frontier that is just we've seen so much uh death and beauty kind of mingled Mm -hmm. and it's just it it feels like man is really stressing to us that this film in the end it's not so much just about these two people and whether they're going to end up together and whether they're going to be safe it's about kind of a much bigger setting and that that blank cliff face kind of stands in for all of america and everything that is in the country's future. <laughs> yeah, it kind of almost feels like there's this danger of the United States isn't even going to be able to make it out alive from before its own birth, in effect. So this movie takes place in 1757. It's during what we call the French and Indian Wars. So you have the French and the British fighting each other, and then different indigenous nations have taken sides with either the French or the British. 
And you get the sense that all of these individual people like Hawkeye and Korra at the cliff face are, are kind of they're squeezed into a position that they can't survive on their own. So they really have no choice except to band together with each other or to throw in their lot with somebody else who may be able to help them out. And I think this is kind of an interesting variation on what I like about Michael Mann movies is that they're always about men who are very good at their jobs. And I think that that's also the case here, but it feels like a very different flavor because it isn't about thieves in in contemporary United States. It's about people who are frontiersmen or very skilled hunters or very skilled fighters. And in some cases, the thing that they're skilled at isn't perfectly suited to the landscape that they're in. Like those redcoats who are caught in the middle of if in the middle of the um, meadow who don't really know how to fight against guerrilla warfare, like they just don't fully understand it. They're good at what they do when what they're doing is back on another continent and in another place, and so they either have to adapt or die. And I think the colonial Americans and the frontiersmen who have been pushed out towards those edges have figured out how to do that, but none of these other officers necessarily have. And so I think it's interesting to watch that tension between all of these different ways of life. You hear you hear um, a British officer very early on in the movie talk about how he feels like his mandate essentially is to bring England to the entire world and sort of conform it into England's image. And you understand as the movie goes along, that's just not going to be possible and it's not going to happen no matter how good these men are at their jobs or or at what they're supposed to be able to do because they've come up against this immovable object that's not going to shift for them at all. I think that contrast between the America that is, Mm -hmm. the, the America that these characters are confronted with throughout the entire film and the America that we know is going to take shape and also the America that these people want to create, like all three of those things are kind of, they're, they're not, they're, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, uh, again, I just, the, the word melancholy keeps coming back to me because we see that it's not just about the, the bad guy colonials and the good guy narratives. It's, It's about these, there are these forces that are bigger than them that are going to, warp and conform them into its own shape mm-hmm. and that in its own way is uh disturbing and a tragedy mm-hmm. uh, magua is a fantastically interesting villain we find out that uh, his motivations are he wants to he, he wants to get revenge on the white man but more than that he wants to beat the white man at his own game mm-hmm. and that is presented number one as uh, a very sympathetic motivation you understand why he is so bent on revenge Mm -hmm. and it also is saddening because his his solution to you know if you can't beat him join him and then beat him yeah is is just that's that's that leads him into such dark territory that you you sense that something is being something irrevocable is being lost in the same way that chingachuk is irrevocable irrevocably going to be the last of his own tribe yeah and i think it's telling that the movie doesn't tell you any of this necessarily explicitly like a lot of it is informed by character actions and choices um but there is a telling piece of dialogue right near the end magua has captured um, the british general's daughters cora and alice and he's brought them in to his leader um and He's explaining his motivations for what he's done, and he's basically asking for for his Seshem's blessing over what he's done. 
And um, Hawkeye, of course, comes in to save the day. And as Magua and Hawkeye are kind of arguing with each other in front of the Sashem, Magua starts speaking in French. And I think that that's a pretty telling part of who he is and how his identity has shifted irrevocably because because he tried to join them and then beat them. That's That means that something else has been lost fundamentally as well. Um, I don't know, like, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of Hawkeye in all of this. I think he's a fascinating character and I think he's a lot more interesting than he is in the original books. Personally, um, I'm, I'm not a, a massive fan of, of James Fenimore Cooper's writing. Um, and maybe it's because he's embodied and he's not just a character on a page, but he, he's embodied by this like tall rangy man who, who seems to know how to do things better than he knows how to talk about them. Um, except when it's important, And, um, yeah, I don't know, like, Magua is someone who speaks a lot and then does action. And then Hawkeye is someone who performs the action and then maybe he'll talk about it afterwards, I think is an interesting contrast between those two as well. Hmm. Even though, like, the the movie isn't necessarily drawing it out. Maybe I'm drawing it out a little bit too much. But I did find those two juxtaposed against each other right at the very end to be interesting. I mean, I I don't know if I'm if I can get fully on board with with that with that reading but i think i i like that you brought up that that confrontation from the sashim because again it seems quintessentially american in that there's languages flying around uh, all over the place overlapping each other o- talking over each other mm-hmm. so we have um people speaking we have characters speaking english uh their words being translated into french uh, meanwhile, we have a an, another character speaking in Huron, mm-hmm. and then uh, another character speaking, re- replying in Huron, and then his words being translated back into English. And all of these languages are just talking all over. And that, again, feels like almost a literalization of the melting pot idea of America, that there are all these mm-hmm. people from different parts of the world, different tongues, and... They can't understand each other, but they are still stuck in the same place together, and they have to find some sort of uh, not common ground. They have to they have to find some sort of way to communicate and be in the same space. And I don't think they manage to do it necessarily. Like the the movie, I, I don't think it's pessimistic necessarily but that melancholy definitely works because i don't think anybody fully comes to under an understanding of each other except perhaps hawkeye and cora of chingachgook and that understanding is that his own knowledge is going to die with him when he eventually passes away and i don't know like okay maybe that is a little bit more melancholy than i was saying (laughs) but i think the the trick of this movie is it's not just melancholy and it's not just historical drama this is a capital r romantic movie at the same time and i don't know how michael mann managed to do it but he manages to balance all of those tones quite beautifully i think i mean i don't know oh, so, so this okay. this might be the the part where we differ slightly i i like this movie i do think that i part ways with you in finding hawkeye interesting okay i really don't think the way he's written here is a problem for me he he kind of delivers a lot of you know the the cliched sort of action hero dialogue like 
come with me if you want to live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not He doesn't say that in so many words, but that's kind of the sort of dialogue that the script gives Daniel Day-Lewis to deliver. And Day-Lewis does fine with it. I don't think it's a particularly interesting performance from him. Huh. I think he kind of, he feels a lot like uh, a very generic sort of presence hmm. to me. He He's very competent as are most uh, man- male care man male characters sorry <laughs> let me let me rephrase that a little bit so it's not so awkward he is extremely competent as most male characters in a man film are um he's kind of laconic you know he doesn't he's not the sort of person who keeps talking and talking and talking he just he's a man of action mm-hmm. um but i think the specific ways that that is illustrated for us on screen feel much more of a piece with Hollywood action hero cliches than something truly distinctive and interesting to me. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I do differ with you on this because I did find him deeply compelling. And I think a lot of it is just in that physical performance. Like some of the dialogue can be a little bit on the forgettable side, but it's the way that he moves and the way that he moves through the forest, like assuredly and the way that he, I don't know, looks at all of the different characters it worked for me i mean i'm also not made of stone it's daniel day <laughs> i mean he he's got those he's got those flowing locks and you know who whomst among us right but <laughs> yeah. i i i think that again it's not so much that it's it's a bad performance or a cliched performance mm. i just think it doesn't it doesn't live up to the rest of the film i think the rest of the film is so good at telling through images and just creating such a rich sense of place and the various cultures in that place hmm. that to have Daniel Day-Lewis sort of come in and just sort of like give a Clint Eastwood squint at the foppish British officer and say, you don't know what you're talking about. There are people out there who are losing their homes. Yeah. You know, it, it, it just feels very much like one of these things is much more two-dimensional than, than the other elements. And I, I think that's kind of what I'm seeing in in the screenplay and in Lewis's performance. Does it feel very basic to you? Because like, I I feel like it feels simple, but it doesn't feel basic. It feels, uh, it feels like I've seen it before. I, I, Mm. cliche might be slightly too strong because it's not, it's not like I've heard those exact lines necessarily, but it definitely feels like this is well-worn territory for an American action hero to be, uh, striking this kind of pose, to be interacting with characters in this sort of way, mm. to be framed kind of in uh, in a way that uh, is where he's almost untouchable, I guess. Like, there's not a whole lot of, uh, of complicating elements in that characterization for me to do much more than kind of like recognize him as a type. Hmm. And I feel like man characters may be simple and the characters themselves aren't complex, but I feel like they say something about masculinity and the devotion to duty and honor and all of these things. Even if the character doesn't think of them that way, I feel like they lend themselves to that reading in a way that Hawkeye here kind of just, he doesn't seem like he lends himself to that much of an interesting explication. Hmm. Okay. So... I'm with you on the duty and the honor. I think one of the shots that made me sit up and take notice, particularly of Hawkeye and Korra's dynamic, is 
after Hawkeye has rescued Korra and her sister for the very first time, they're escorting the girls to Fort William and Henry. And they've they've sort of bivouacked a little bit for, for the evening because they know that they're being hunted by the Huron. And Korra and Hawkeye have the chance to talk about something that they've seen earlier in the day, which is a burned out cabin with the bodies of, of settlers. Um, and Korra can't understand Hawkeye's pragmatism in being willing to leave those people behind unburied because he knows that for him and for Korra and for everybody else that they're with, it's, it's a matter of life and death. And so he just has to make that hard, simple decision and just keep moving on because if he does do the quote unquote decent thing, then he's going to doom everybody else. And I think for me, Hawkeye works because he's boiled down to that very bare pragmatism, but he also has that sense of duty. He could just leave Cora and her sister out in the wilderness. Like he has that option. And yet he feels this desire to bring these women to safety because he knows that if he doesn't, they will meet the same fate as everybody else who got burned out of that cabin and who got murdered. Um, and I think the the scene where he and Cora start to come to an understanding of each other, or at least an understanding that they're never fully going to understand each other. Some of it happens in dialogue, but some of it happens in a look. And then a war party comes by them as they're camped out. And Cora's looking over his shoulder out into like the blue light of the moon. And he has a rifle and she's kind of just peering over and you can see the intelligence in her eyes and you can see the intelligence in his as they're as they're watching this war party coming and advancing on them. And you can tell that both of them are capable and both of them respect each other a lot more after this encounter and then after their encounter with each other. Does that work? I, I think the filmmaking is there. I don't think the writing is there okay. it is maybe the crux of my problem is mm. I think that you're your analysis of that shot is is really great and i'm i'm fully convinced by it i don't think that there's enough there in the writing for me to kind of just buy it on a storytelling level like on a cinematic level i i think it sells it mm-hmm. i think stowe and lewis and man's direction all like it it sells us what's on the page I think they have to work pretty hard to sell what's on that page. Though. I think what's on the page is a little bit shallow. I'm an easy buy. Then. <laughs> I, I mean, like I said, I like this film. And I think it's because at the end of the day, whether or not the, the writing is super nuanced is beside the point. I think, you know, as a whole, as a total package, the film really does work and it does sell those things. It does succeed at saying all of this stuff. Um, and I think, again, that's just a testament to the fact that uh, a movie isn't just like, you know, one, you know, it's not it's not all the writers, not all the director, it's not all the actors. Mm-hmm. It's kind of all those things working in concert can create something that's more than the sum of its parts. And I think The Last of the Mohicans is just, I mean, I was entranced while watching it. It's just, it's so, it's so watchable. It looks so good. Um, Success. That it, it. <laughs> It just submerges any quibbles with the screenplay or the performance just into an overwhelming, like, this is 
what I need to be watching right now. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm sorely tempted to go out and watch it again, if just for the shots of Fort William and Henry at night getting shelled by the French. Like, just the light of the bombs bursting up against the darkness of the cliff. Mm-hmm. That alone, I think, um, I, I turned to my husband while we were watching it, and I was like, I think this might be my new favorite movie. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those films, like, I would love to be able to see this on the big screen. Oh, yeah. Um, and... I, I'm not going to lie. It's very possible. I might YouTube that climax, that climactic chase again. Uh, we haven't even talked about the score, which the score also is something that feels quintessentially American. Like there's mm-hmm. something about it that feels like it has it. It has its roots very specifically in a certain kind of folk mm-hmm. um, that that grew out of it grew in a soil that wasn't American, but was transplanted here and Mm. it feels very much of a piece with those grand vistas and cliff faces and all the rest i'll probably add it to my writing playlist honestly too i could see that it'd work that way uh well i mean i guess we should probably stop talking about (laughs) the last of mohicans now because we are getting close to the end of the episode but i mean this is one of those films they just you watch it and you just kind of want to you want to keep gushing about it. I, I yes. guess the, the only antidote to that is watch it again. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of The Last of the Mohicans in celebration of its 30th birthday. Then let us know your thoughts as well. What was your favorite shot? Uh, what is your favorite sequence? What do you think about the, the screenplay, the performances, all that? We'd love to hear from you about any of those things. We are going to be uh, still talking about... Uh, war or at least war adjacent films next week sarah Mm -hmm. um we are going to be digging into uh, gina prince bythewood's the woman king starring viola davis Mm -hmm. looking forward to talking about that one and uh for my watch list pick i am picking one that i have seen that you have not uh we're going to be talking about another film about uh strong women caught up in warfare zero dark 30 yeah um I like Catherine Bigelow. I also have not met a Catherine Bigelow I didn't like at this point. So I think it'll be interesting to catch up with this one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that as well. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer every week is Jonathan Clausen, who helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.